practice makes Good afternoon, everyone. Happy December. Happy Stolstice. This is Practice Makes Practice, the podcast. I'm Christopher Knowles, the executive director of our organization. And we are joined here today with Moonjang Jung. She is a designer and educator located currently in Athens, Georgia. She works at the Lamar Dodd School of Art. And she has also been pursuing her own practice pretty much for over a decade now. And uh, welcome, Moon. Thank you for coming. Hi. Hello, everyone. My name is Moon Chang. <laughs> it is so good to be here and so exciting. And thank you, Christopher, for inviting absolutely, me. Absolutely. So you just wrapped up the semester. Uh, how, how are you doing today? Oh, yeah. Um, I finished and turned in all my grades yesterday. So now it is winter break. <laughs> so good uh, for, for the break. But because of the pandemic, I will be staying in Athens and will not travel this mm -hmm. winter. And that part is not so exciting. <laughs> yeah, change of scene is good, right? <laughs> yeah, but my students finished the fall semester safely. And I think that is the most important thing to have happened. So I feel good wonderful, now. Wonderful. So why don't we go ahead and get into this? Um, would you mind defining sure. your practice for us? And what are you doing right now, currently? Okay, that is an easy and at the same time difficult question to answer because what you do is part of your identity, mm -hmm. right? And so in a way, identity changes depending on what context you're in or what you interact with. Specifically, in this digital era, everything seems to be uncertain, vague, and blur, or multiplied. Mm -hmm. So for who I am and what I do, I would say that I'm a designer researcher visual artist and design educator. Mm. I, I, I use design as a tool to solve others' communication problems most of the time by using visual language and visual semantics. I have done all types of traditional graphic design with a wide range of media for small and big clients in both the States and Korea. Recently, one of my commissioned projects was publication design for the journal American Craft Inquiry and some promotional designs for exhibitions. And um, I use design methods as a research tool to understand unknown things or things that I'm curious about or things that I want to express and imagine. Mm. Um, I guess you can call them, I know Christopher is familiar with this. Um, I guess you can call them self-authored or self-initiated design mm. projects or speculative design and 
Oftentimes, those projects are displayed in online and offline design platforms or art galleries and museums having the general public as audience. Um, lastly, I use design as a tool to teach design practices at the University of Georgia. I have been teaching here at UGA for many, many years now. And for me, teaching has been the best way of traveling through this meaningful design journey. So just to summarize, what I do for each practice is independent in a way, but at the same time, these identities and practices are multiple phases of me and have always interplayed on many levels in the light of design. That's wonderful. As you pursue your practices, what is it that helps you navigate which practice to emphasize at any given point? Um, or how do they speak to one another? if you will. So you have an educational practice, you have a speculative practice, and then you have a visual communication practice, essentially. Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. How do you enjoy the three of those coming together to form sort of a, an umbrella practice? So I guess the backbone question I have for all three uh, is how to how to visualize the invisible visible mm. and like every time I go somewhere I I think oh what do I see and I observe things uh, objects or environment and figure out what I see and what I don't see and if there's something that I don't see I try to investigate what they are and see if it's, it's something that I want to work with and visualize them, you know? Yeah. And, and I think from there, the practice is divided into three or start from one practice, uh, like my research and that research practices sort of influenced my teaching materials mm -hmm. and teaching materials is is kind of displayed in my classroom working with students and I, I find something more and that goes back to my own research does that make sense absolutely so yeah you in some ways it's like you look around the world as a discovery point or a mirror to figure out essentially what to make or what to question. And then in the classroom, that's an arena to um, see the various ways in which a particular idea may be interpreted by many people and then come back together to inform what you might make next. Does that make sense? Yes, perfect. <laughs> that's that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, that's, you know, that's great because what I get from that is you just have like a very, very intentional high awareness level 
of of how you think about the correlations between what you uh, what you want to question and what you want to produce, and then what are the procedures in the middle that get you between the question and the result? Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like connecting like questions and projecting my answers to to public or to classrooms um, or to people who who I would like to talk about, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, How did you come about sort of developing this approach? When did this all start for you? Uh, when did you start to ask these questions maybe and, and figure out, oh, maybe, maybe this vehicle of design makes sense for me? Hmm. I guess, um, you know, now like we are familiar with all this design processes and uh, practices, it's sort of like uh, we have established our own ways of producing design outcomes and so I guess it's just the air I I don't know if I have a particular sort of time or place I I guess it's just very natural to me to start think about what I see Mm. but um let's see if I feel like I want to know more or if i if i see something unknown to me maybe you could say like a curiosity Mm -hmm. then i start the questions are coming from there Mm. sometimes you have very like um dramatic emotional changes like if you have an anger or something then i guess you have to express how you feel at that moment. And I think design can be a tool to, to visualize that feeling or emotions to, to communicate with people. Mm-hmm. Um, Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. So the questioning can actually come from just mere observation of like an external environment but it can also be something that comes from an internal environment. Exactly. Like, Mm. yeah. How you feel about something. When you go about your, your practices, do you take a more intuitive emotional approach, a more, I guess, for lack of a better term, logical approach? Uh, or do you kind of pull it all together and it's kind of a balance between logic and emotion? That's, that's a good question. They're inseparate, I think. They have to exist at the same time. I mean, you can, you can have like a step-by-step design process for sure, mm-hmm. but every single step you take must have sort of a highly logical approach and deeply intuitive sort of feeling, you know? Yeah, very nice. So you're you're Korean and born and raised. I am. (laughs) Which is wonderful. Um, But you're now currently living in Athens, Georgia. Um, So I'm 
I have a couple questions about location. So um, being raised Korean, how has that affected your practice, if at all? <laughs> Just curious. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I'm glad that you asked me that question because that cultural background is a huge part of my identity as well. In America, the communities and people I have interacted with are very welcoming and having multicultural experiences has given me a lot of benefits actually but um, I haven't had an opportunity to talk about it much probably because I have tried to assimilate myself into the American cultures most of the time since I moved to Athens mm -hmm. So yes, I was born and grew up in Seoul, South Korea, and now I'm living in Athens, Georgia. I go to Seoul at least every other summer to see my family and friends and to keep my multicultural values and experiences. Mm -hmm. So let's see, the question was how, <laughs> how my career... <laughs> The question was how how my Korean upbringing affects my practice. Gosh, uh, that'll take a few days to answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, there are so many great cultural qualities and concepts I have learned from growing up in Korea. Uh, some of uh, some have to do with some nationality for sure. Some have to do with my family and friends. Mm. And uh, many of the reasons why I have been able to survive being a minority in this country are the foundational personalities formed from my childhood and hometown, as everyone has. People might know some general sort of characteristics of Koreans who are like shy, maybe too shy, friendly, humble, or loving people and communities, well-skilled and meticulous, high work ethic, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I would say that some of those qualities have affected my way of working or maybe ways people see me as a person and a designer. Uh, but if I have to pick the most effective quality, then I would say that the Korean quality and level of work ethic mm. have led me to many many great opportunities to to grow um, some personalities are in in inherently from my parents of course my father was a news announcer and my mother was a pharmacist mm -hmm. both were very creative skilled very patient and persistent on many levels so as a designer, I think I got lucky to have their genes. Mm -hmm. When I was little, like after school, I played with my brother in her pharmacy, which was my playground in a way. Mm -hmm. And 
And I remember that while I was waiting for mom, I drew and built something with medicine, packaging, boxes, and paper all the time. And so I think I gained some self-motivating skills and became familiar with making something with boxes, which uh, were sort of design modules mm. from my childhood. Wow. And yeah, and, and then in the 60s and 90s, um, it was a time before and after when the communism societies collapsed. Mm -hmm. There were many social, cultural, and political issues in the Korean society, such as like military dictatorship, injustice, inequity, inequity equality, the gap between the poor and rich, and so on. Mm -hmm. I mean, those problems are all time issues everywhere, like until now, right? Yeah. Um, but for me, that was the time when I realized how unfair and undemocratic a society could be at that time people learned about justice and democracy on the streets, not in the schools. So student designers and artists actively responded to the issues by designing banners, posters, and flyers quite often. And I remember that we studied and referred to various graphic activism projects that happened in the 60s in the Western societies, like the First Things First Manifesto. Mm -hmm. And so all those experiences have basically determined and affected my design attitude in representational and abstract or direct in and indirect ways until now. After then, I followed a sort of standard design industry for a living, uh, as we all do, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and worked for art and design magazines and co-founded a small design firm with my friend, I worked with many amazing creative designers for many different projects during that time. And, and what else? Let's see, uh, come to think of it, uh, witnessing the Korean progressive social cultural changes and experiences affected mm -hmm. my thesis work titled Peripheral Vision. Mm -hmm. It was a study about the relationship between marginalization as a visual concept in graphic design and the day-to-day -day realities of marginalized labor practices. Mm. It was also my visual response to the question, what it means to see things, like I said previously, and what it means to create a meaningful order through design. And, and that was the beginning of this amazing design journey I have made in the US. Um, that has led me to ask a bunch of correlated questions like what is the invisible? How could I translate the invisible visible? 
mm-hmm. or reflections on like am I contributing to meaningful order and have I become a better person through design education mm-hmm. and and more and more so the thesis was one of the answers to to those questions and during the thesis work, I met incredible professors and designers who I became, you know, whom, uh, you know, became my role models. And anyway, to sum up, I guess, absolutely, the Korean qualities and concepts embedded in me are part of my design attitude and a way of seeing the world interwoven with my experiences in the U.S., that's fascinating, by the way. And, and I think that maybe it's really necessary to understand how much of a designed world we live in. And so when we look at social structures, governments, policies, economies, who's marginalized, who isn't, um, this is all, to me, also design questions, right? Because they're all, mm-hmm. they're all systems, and I think that's really important, you know, for people to understand that like design has a visual component, but it also ha- it's very much about like systematic organization and mm-hmm. hopefully for like an intended outcome, you know? Yeah, to, to make something better. And, uh, yeah. How, um, so with such a really like rich, rich, rich um, upbringing and influence, living in Athens, Georgia, for some of our listeners, um, they may not know Athens. Would you care to describe through your eyes, Moon, what Athens, Georgia is? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. So living in Athens has affected my work, of course, as opposed to working in a metropolitan city where you might have too much distraction and stress. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, There are are so many art design, but not much design maybe, uh, but music and cultural events, lectures, workshops, and exhibitions in Athens. For me, Athens is a small college town where I can observe and appreciate, you know, beautiful, beautiful functional nature, which is the ultimate design resource and the host of all living creatures. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I I go to the the Georgia Botanical Garden for a walk and inspiration, and I never get bored in there actually and I thought it could be very boring but (laughs) (laughs) not really and always have a clear you know have a clear mind after the walk Hmm. and so I guess living in Athens allows me to translate the invisible things into abstract forms in many ways and um In Athens, I actually started understanding design principles and rhetorical principles a bit more in depth because the hub of Athens is the university. Just working at this research one university 
in energetic educational environment is the tremendous benefit for me to develop design education and practices. Mm. So like, for example, when I came to Athens to teach design right after graduate school, I had no idea what I was doing. And, <laughs> and I was assigned to teach color and composition. Um, even though I worked as a designer and studied design methods for so long, I had, you know, never introduced color as a primary visual language in such academic settings mm -hmm. until I started teaching it. So, you know, definitely there was a learning curve, but I quickly adjusted to the teaching and learning environment and figured things out covering some fundamental color studies. At the same time, I also wanted to teach something where I could have fun. So, so I set up a project that was about visualizing music or sound or a poem using colors. I don't remember it you know, when exactly I came up with that assignment and instructions, but I, I had to walk by the UGA music school to get into the art building and heard all types of music and sound all the time. And uh, in addition to that, you know, I was so into forming sort of color systems in all possible ways and translating one sense to another, like how I could visualize the invisible visible. And so it was a, it was a good project for the course. And, and as a result, I actually felt more satisfied with the school project than some of the sidewalk, uh, side work I, I, I was doing. So I think most importantly, we had, you know, so much fun with the project. And, and so definitely I survived as an instructor from teaching that course. <laughs> and, 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 and that experience led me to the next point where, where I became more interested in color as a visual language and a substantial material for creating visual narratives. And so I made some projects based on my design inquiry, such as the relationship between color and the weather of Athens, or the relationship between color and object, a tree and space time in Athens, and so on. That sounds to me like a story of the practice finding you as much as you're finding the practice, you know, as you move through your life and you occupy these different spaces, it's, it's amazing how it transforms a body of work, how it inspires new questions, how it keeps a practice fresh and evolving. You're right. I mean, Athens is interesting. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up was that um, you're right that it has some really great music culture, arts culture. Um, mm -hmm. There's a tension in Athens between like the cerebral activity and then like the rest of Athens or like Georgia, you know, like it feels like it, 
in some ways like two different worlds coming together sometimes um exactly you know yeah. and that is an interesting cultural study as well you know and i i think even for like a city like atlanta and we'll talk a little more about that um in a while but let's turn a little bit to let's get into some of your work and your research sure. so, so how has your research evolved over your career um and how is it uh how can it help us learn more about potentials of design to communicate or solve problems um as i mentioned earlier i developed my research based on things that i'm interested in such as translating one sense to another with my design attitude and through my teaching practices um I come up with many ideas during my lecture preps or by helping students because I try to find good resources and references for students. And so like, again, those effort in research come back to my own research and, and yes, they, they interplay with each other all the time. And, and like one thing leads to another it's like how you build up your stories it's that happens between my three sort of like a phase of uh, practices yeah i think that's that's all i could say about <laughs> how, how i developed and like you know have evolved as as a designer and researcher mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Um, you're currently the chair of design at, Lam do I have that right? Oh no, visual, yeah, yeah. visual. Yeah, you're right. Okay, at Lamar Dodd yeah. School of Art, um, you know, and you've spoken a little bit about how you've developed your pedagogy, um, but something I, I love the way you talk about your teaching practice. So you say, my teaching begins with redesigning a space. You state, my teaching practices aim to cultivate creative and experimental design to maximize design thinking and logical and intuitive design processes and to establish design philosophy with critical, ethical, and democratic design aspects. Um, how long have you been, we never really established this, how long have you been teaching at Lamar Dodd? I've been teaching at UGA for the last 11 years. Okay. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> that's, that's many, many years. Oh, wow. Wow. And wow, that the teaching philosophy thing is, did I say that? That's, you, that's, you did say it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my, oh my God. I'm nervous now. <laughs> You got a lot to live up to now. I know. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, wow. Okay. So how do you feel that's been going? I mean, I, I personally really love the two component. I mean, I love how you say that it, you begin with redesigning a space. About redesigning a space, uh, I think an educational narrative begins with the space you enter right yeah in in other words how you define your classroom will determine 
the content you cover in class activities that you are doing with students. And so in, I think it was uh, 2015, I visited my friend Bart in Amsterdam and he invited me to his class as, as a guest critic at the Design Academy Eindhoven. Mm. And in the school building, they didn't have any walls. It's, it was just a giant floor. You know, the, it was just a giant design studio space where you could create your, your space using movable walls with wheels. Mm. And, and so I thought that was quite interesting, you know, to design a space. And so what I learned from seeing it was that classes are separate, but very open simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea about redesigning my classroom began from that trip. And so after that, I have included a series of uh, short workshops as daily exercises rather than assigning sort of like a month-long projects. So like, for example, you know, we would have a book binding workshop one day and another day, like, you know, there would be a button making workshop, laser cutting workshop, and a coding workshop, and so on. So this small daily exercises compiled as they, you know, went through a semester, and and this in individual exercise also sort of like a merge into their sort of long term project. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the along with daily exercises, I think that more research-based, a new sense-making and open-ended projects with a couple of explicit constraints, design constraints can help students enhance design thinking and logical intuitive design processes. So like redesigning space is, is basically trying to, you know, bring in various workshops and, you know, redefining the, the classroom based on that individual sort of exercise or topic. Does that make sense? Yeah, it actually sounds closer to me like, I think it was sometime in the 60s that the current model of like arts education and university changed where it got really uh -huh. specialized. But I think before then, I think it was potentially, I mean, there was like the ideas that came out of, you know, of course, like Germany with like Bauhaus, but there was also the French idea of the atelier that happened forever where you could just kind of freely learn and off of one another through various activities. But it is true in a way, right? Like a classroom effectively is a blank canvas 
and right, right. It can be designed or redesigned in your in the way that you're saying. So, um, how's your work at Lamar Dodd? Have you felt uh, that you've been able to attain some of your philosophy? Have you found good alignments between what you see coming out of the classroom experience with your uh, philosophy? Um, yes, definitely. And I mean, I teach undergraduate graphic design courses where I have to cover a wide range of uh, practices and information and tools. So these sort of redesigning classroom and covering a short workshop and assigning daily exercises are helping me to integrate this sort of multiple things that I have to cover really well. Mm. Um, and not only just doing things, but also, you know, make them question or come up with uh, design inquiries, I think. But at the beginning of my teaching career, mm -hmm. I, I was more like a, a t an instructor who controlled over all types of class activities. Mm -hmm. Like every <laughs> single minute had, had to be planned, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> that sounds <But> exhausting. I, <laughs> How did you? <laughs> I know. I was so tired. <laughs> and so. Yeah, I was I was controlling more back in the day, but now I see students like once they click, you know, yeah, the students can just autonomously like explore uh, design methods and tools and being more creative and opposing intellectual questions mm -hmm. so yeah i i found that and learned like improvising you know your instructions could be very helpful um mm -hmm. less controlling over like students activities does that make sense <clears throat> well it does because i think it allows for a different level of responsiveness, which, you know, as student, as hopefully you're getting to a place where people are starting to ask their own questions in the work and mm -hmm. around them. Um, sometimes it's difficult to know, you know, before you move into the work, like what the project requires or like what this, the particular viewpoint needs, you know, I think that that's mm -hmm. the other thing. Um, so I like it because it, it, well, it's more democratic, but it also, right. I think it actually right. teaches them to trust themselves more than, right. Yeah. Like they can have an idea that's extremely good and they can develop that idea in a way that maybe something heavily structured would have clipped that idea off at the past too soon, or it's been like, well, this doesn't fit, mm -hmm. fit the specific requirement. 
You know, it's sometimes mm -hmm. like working with clients where you go into a project and there's a brief and there's a beginning to it. But as you get into the work, you kind of discover, oh, I think this project may need this instead of this. And like, then you can have that conversation with the client and say, this would actually be much better for what you need. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think at an educational level, it's important to, to begin developing that strength to be able to make those yeah. decisions. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think the design educator might share some similar methodologies and educational stories. Mm. And so, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, there are, there are multiple solutions. Uh, I mean, we call it a system, I guess, like you, you design a system where users can find multiple solutions, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I guess less controlling over the students' activities, you know, made me like see their potentials more and, and led them to to build a system rather than like, you know, finding one solution for, for, for the design problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And I like what you said about, you know, you know, questions. Like I, I was lucky to have incredible professors when I was in graduate school and they're like all my professors were so good at asking students questions and facilitating critiques. And as a student, uh, you probably feel so good when you find an answer and solution or discover something new by yourself. And if you remember that feeling of discovery, or the feeling of like, you know, seeing your system works, you probably want to have that same feeling more and more, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so you can, you know, work harder and harder to have that amazing feelings and that becomes your love for design. Mm. And, and that's where I guess you learned, you know, like that's a sort of like a pedagogy, you know? Mm -hmm. So like asking a good question is the most important task for us as, as instructors, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> yeah. And, I think the other side, so there is that. And I think what I've also learned is one of the important tasks is to help. It, it's going to sound weird, but almost like try to deprogram the students thinking about what is good, what is bad, what's enough, what's failure, reprogram it so that they, they become mm -hmm. more fluid and more like, um, they understand that like what they're trying to do is get to a place of like incredible discovery. They're trying to get to a place that feels really good. And it's, right. it's tough in academics. Cause I think like with grading and with like how some of education is set up, it's about like mm -hmm. meeting these benchmarks. Well, it's like, no, no, no. I mean, the value is in like 
how inspired is your work? Do you find that you're asking questions that you love discovering the answer to in your work? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and that's where it's like, oh, it's really communicating now. And other people can tap into it and learn something from your project, you know? Exactly, exactly, yeah. So I was speaking of projects, I had uh, a project I wanted to talk to you about that I thought was so interesting. From 2016 to 2018, you collaborated with the mathematician, Dr. David Gay, on several design and math projects. Um, A couple of these were called Spaces of Spaces in Spaces and Surfaces of Surfaces Through Surfaces. Would you mind talking to us about these projects and what was the outcome of them? <laughs> sure. Okay, so uh, 2016, in 2016, the artistic director, Mark Callahan, uh, had ideas for a creative exploration called ICE uh, at UGA, mm-hmm. invited me and Dr. Gay, math professor, you know, to join the residency program at ICE. And so Dave and I met almost every Friday for a semester sharing ideas and talked about what we want, wanted to collaborate on together. And so the residency program became a platform for us to design a math and design workshop and and we dreamed about co-teaching a class. And so in the following semester, we conducted a pilot design and math workshop and co-taught a new collaborative and experiential learning course titled um, Math Outreach Design Lab. And so Spaces of Spaces and Spaces was a pop-up exhibition displaying the course outcomes, you know? Yeah. And I guess the content was from Dave, you know, the math sort of ideas, Mm -hmm. mostly about geometry. I mean, how to translate this geometric sequences into different visual forms. I think that was what we did. And he wanted to have some tangible sort of physical forms because he always, and most of the time he talks um, his, his ideas and his course content in the classroom without maybe having many sort of models or samples, uh, specifically when they had a new sort of ideas, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So, yeah, there were some design students with me and we basically kind of learned about some sort of geometrical or topological ideas of forms and, you know, created and built this sort of abstract forms together by using design materials or like laser cuttings that I taught in a workshop, you know, something like that. Okay. So, yeah. And, and then we collaborated on creating a couple of visual forms with math ideas uh, for an exhibition 
super surfaces I created in Seoul in the summer of 2018. Mm. And so that part is basically about surfaces of surfaces through surfaces. And, and the exhibition had um, designers and artists and obviously Dave uh, was the only mathematician who participated in the show. <laughs> so it's sort of like an interdisciplinary or you can say transdisciplinary yeah. exhibition, <clears throat> sort of like, like a researching super surfaces, like surfaces you could imagine. Yeah. Um, and the, the collaboration was our responses to a design inquiry, which was what happened when 3D objects uh, rolled on 3D, 3D surfaces. So we, we created this triangular multifaceted object and imagining it sort of rolling on a triangular three-dimensional surfaces uh it sounds kind of crazy but <laughs> <laughs> but it was very fun and yeah and i learned a lot and so yeah i would like to continue to collaborate um with him on, on projects but we have we have not been able to get together this year due to the pandemic, but I'm hoping to continue working with him. Yeah. That's wonderful. So speaking of shows, another thing that you've been responsible for developing is the Cube Gallery in Athens. Mm -hmm. um, unless any of our listeners go to Lamar Dodd or have gone to Lamar Dodd, they probably don't know what this is. So what is Cube Gallery? And what have you done with it? What are some what are some of the projects and types of shows that have happened there? Okay, uh, so Cube is 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 the experimental design lab that I founded in spring two thousand fifteen at the school. But sort of uh, the story behind it is is that sometimes I felt the class content hours were not enough to do something experimental. And so I thought about making a space more active and, you know, building some sort of design community. And, 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 and so the cube, the cube gallery is the result of it. Uh, okay. Cube is, yeah, yeah. Cube is combined initials of four, words uh cultivate unite beautify and educate mm. and and cube has multiple functions such as a design research lab workshop you know making uh, books together we we thought about making it as a as a shop like running it as a design shop but that was kind of impossible <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, nowadays, it's more like a gallery space, you know, uh, or a workshop space. And after I had done some fun 
foundational framework for Cube, I invited graphic design major students, uh, Jake, Joel, and Julie to, to design the opening and a series of uh, workshop uh, with me. And since then, Cube has invited designers, artists, students to participate in design workshops in collaborative settings. Uh, you, uh, Christopher, <laughs> and my colleague and Erin Moore were, were invited as guest designers along with uh, some students uh, for a workshop in, in, I think it was 2015, the same year, or 16. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. It's, I know. It seems like a long time, huh? Long I know. And we collaborated on an experimental piece of design titled On the Boundaries um, at the Cube Gallery. And yeah, it was so much fun. And yeah, Cube is an, like an incubator, you know, for, mm -hmm. for us to think about what, uh, what we want to do with, um, you know, people who are in other disciplines. So yeah, it's been it's been great, but again, the pandemic just doesn't allow us to to do anything in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I I go back to your idea of like redesigning space, and I think with the pandemic, I have now gone to question space in general. You know, redefining what space is. Um, that's some of the some of the interesting considerations practice makes practice has had to come up with as well is uh you know how do we redefine space for ourselves now so that you know because it's i mean the easy answer or the answer that it seems like a lot of people came up with immediately was make everything virtual make everything digital and I think mm -hmm. there's merit in that, but I think that it's kind of, it's still not enough. There's something, it, it feels like, you know what I mean? Like there's not the right kind of communication happening um, exactly. around stuff, you know? So like if you tap into a virtual experience, you're still, I think you're largely still having that experience just by yourself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the value of, space is like sharing space and what happens then you know so um yeah, yeah. so i'm a, i i love hearing about cube i hope maybe the break has provided an opportunity to come up with new ideas for cube um mm -hmm. where it can go that kind of stuff i didn't know it was an acronym by the way because the the space is a literal cube as well exactly <laughs> it's um, like a box <laughs> like yeah I mean, back in the day, uh, I think we used to call it gla a, a glass gallery because it has two uh, huge uh, glass windows. Um, so two walls are made out of glasses. But anyway, yeah, cube stands for four words, <laughs> four active verbs. That's wonderful. So I'm gonna jump just a little bit because Cube got me thinking, how do you feel that thoughtful practices can improve a community? And what are some examples of times when you've seen design directly affecting a community? Um, that's a good question. I actually, 
what do you mean like thoughtful design practices? Uh, I would say thoughtful being empathic, intentional, bringing in maybe more voices from the community. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. Because every design practice, you know, must have some kind of, you know, thoughtful process, right? Yeah. So I was just wondering if you are like meaning a very specific sort of um, practice regarding thoughtful design. So, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I guess when you when you have uh, empathy for something, right? Mm -hmm. That could be a point where you are likely to use design as a tool to express your insight. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, again, how you feel and what you see, what you don't see, mm. and I think the design is is like genuinely a communicational act, like changing people's behaviors, you know? And so one of the natures of design is to, to do something for the greater good. Uh, so if you keep doing something insightful, uh, then, then definitely it'll contribute to improving a community. Um, interacting with uh, the community and people just like being with people like thought thoughtful thoughtful people you know will lead you to to something great uh, you got to do something when there are two people right <laughs> <laughs> And you want to know, like, it's, it's like a entering someone else's life. Like you, mm. you know, you get to know this person. And once you find, you know, this person, what this person is like, you want to make something together. I think that's, that's very natural. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So you work with typography a lot. In your work do you have a particular ethos surrounding typography or i guess another way i could ask you know when you work with typography what are some of the questions you begin to ask yourself approaching a project mm, that's a great question um let's see uh, that one also will take a month yeah oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay Let's see, typography. I think uh, to me, typography is 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 you know arranging symbols in many ways. Mm -hmm. And like before you dive into arranging the symbols, you must think about you know what are what you were trying to convey, like what is the communication that you would like to have with people, like audience. So you have to have this sort of uh, series of questions regarding the content that you deliver through 
the vehicle typography, right? Yeah. And basically, when it comes to typography, you you have to think about whether this is this project is for clear communication with with wide range of audience and users. If so, you you really have to you can't do any experiments. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it's a you can mess with it, you know? Mm-hmm. So in that case, it the purpose of dealing with typography is is very clear. You your goal is to bring about the most clear sort of communication with high legibility and readability, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, yeah, in that case, I think that's my approach. But there are some projects, projects that allow you to sort of play with with types as as an image, maybe, yeah, or yeah. as as a symbols, where you could you could kind of interpret what it means to have these symbols. So in that case, I think you can yeah, you can do some expressive or experimental types. Yeah, I think. Uh, could, yeah. could you talk about that a little bit more? What What is your process for experimenting with type? I like that you were talking about that, like type can become an image unto itself. Um, in that way, I feel like what's interesting is you're almost stripping the symbol of its meaning, like agreed upon meaning, and recasting it in a new way, mm-hmm. which is exciting, you know, because that's that's starting to talk about what, using surfaces and objects and items in ways that we haven't learned the new symbology for it. Um, and, and starting right. to ask the question, like, where can that go, you know? Um, but, for, right. but for you, how do you experiment? How do you know, like, a good jumping off point? Or, you know, um, how are the ways that you play around with type? Oh, so... Let's see, maybe maybe I will just tell you about my primary design research and projects I have done and I uh, am interested in. So my primary research in design includes basically two parts. Um, one is self-authored design and the other is commissioned design projects and commissioned design projects are pretty much uh, similar to what everyone does, you know? Yeah. And and I get to explore my views on both, but most of the time I have so much freedom to apply my, my own views on typography and abstraction to self-authored design. Um, and so in my work, I focus on creating visual narratives through design forms and systems. And they have 
sort of like a three sub categories multiplicity mm-hmm. as a visual concept okay so like you know that also has a long story but just uh, to make it short like yeah i i've been fascinated by philosophical idea that there are multiple truths mm-hmm. and and so taking this idea into account i have studied various visual concepts such as duality ambivalence multiplicity and so on and 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 those sort of like reinforce the idea of multiplicity which allows me to understand visual elements seen from different perspectives and to build abstract narratives and so having this concept I have studied some kind of metaphoric modules in custom typography for designing letter forms. Okay. And and the last the third category is, you know, sequential color. As I sort of merge my research and teaching practices and service at the school together, I kind of play with this three categories and they interplay with each other for sure. So the process of building abstract narratives is basically taking things from reality such as the the invisible and translating them into visual forms and projecting them to to the communicational media it could be letter forms mm-hmm. you know yeah you can find some projects on my website for sure like the politics of alignment uh, or universe ssft wtm which represents a week at angle of negative 7 degrees and so on so for 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 typography as a designer you know like i said you you kind of master typography for high legibility and readability and in addition to that i use metaphoric modules as as a tool to design sort of customized letter forms for example putting meaning behind modules mm-hmm. like uh, i did this project titled the color of athens weather and so mm-hmm. i researched sort of the relationship between felt temperature which you call call it heat index mm-hmm. and seen weather which is based on the sky colors and so i took these colors and have this color pixels as a module and built uh, letter forms from it does that make sense yeah so if you decode these colors in the pixels and module you basically you know find the meaning of or the relationship between you know the felt temperature and the scene weather 
Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's so, fascinating. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. yeah, so I get to play like that type of um, methodologies and and create interesting outcomes. But on on the first level, you might not notice what is the process behind it. But once you start decoding each element and module, you would find something interesting, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I wonder, a uh, question would be then, in the nature of graphic design, I feel like a lot of times we're, we're actually developing like code as well, you know? Right. And presenting that. Uh, we're finding the right surface to present that on. And I, I think it's an interesting thing in the way, in the difference maybe between art and design and how graphic designers create these codes that you're not going to walk up to it and immediately understand like this long process that it took to get to that final form. Um, but it, mm -hmm. but it allows for this sort of communication to start happening where the people that come into contact with it can put the meaning into it. And that's the mm -hmm. connection between the designer and the reader or the designer and the viewer is that there's an idea tracing between the two, there's a bridge. So they can ask more questions. They could say, well, why, why is this like this, you know, and it helps them learn. Um, so it, it's interesting. Exactly. And I was thinking that it, it, it can be a new sense making, but at the same time, you, you could feel like void in a way, because sometimes it's just a novel thing, like, wow, how could you come up with this like cerebral systems you know mm -hmm. but it might not be appreciated you know general public mm -hmm. you know what i mean sure. um it's, it doesn't come it probably covers a very specific audience which is fine i think yep mm -hmm. but i i found that there is a joy to to do this type of work so yeah <laughs> yeah and that was one of my questions um and that's a major interest of, of our nonprofit is how can joy be like a really important part of any practice? Because I have observed sometimes designers get into their career and then it's like something happens, like they lose that spark or the joy or right. Right. so would you agree with that? Yeah, and sometimes, you know, once you get into the industry, you know, maybe after two or three years, you feel that, oh, I'm doing the similar designs over and over. Because mm -hmm. you, you might, like, specialize in something, right, yeah. in the industry, and it could be repetitive, so you kind of, you know, lose the, the fun part, the process of designing and building something from nothing. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. 
because it's 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 being repetitive. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's a it's a hard to maintain joy in your in your practice after a couple of years. And how do you do it? Because it seems like you maintain joy pretty well. Yeah, I guess just because I'm uh, with young people in <laughs> in, uh, in this energetic educational environment, I think that's a big big part. And like I said, teaching is the best way of stimulating yourself as a designer. Because you have to know, like, something more than students. (laughs) (laughs) Or do you? (laughs) Exactly. Sometimes it flips. (laughs) I mean, I don't mean that I can't, I don't learn from students. I learn a lot from students, for sure. But Mm -hmm. I guess that sort of uh, youth of design can keep you, like, joyful, Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. I mean, you have to have this balance between client commissioned work and something that you are really passionate about. Like some people smile when they look at cat videos all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Like some people like smile when they watch the baking channels, (laughs) right? Yes. And so I think I, I like seeing something really well proportioned and beautifully mm-hmm. arranged. Yeah. And this arrangement just uh, it's a visual visual language and syntax mm-hmm. and and we see as a designer as designers uh, something that others don't see in that sense. So I guess that's, that's very, uh, that's a joy, right? So yeah, yeah, I try to memorize the feeling of satisfactions, you know, like in the process process of design. Wow. I've never heard someone say that. You try to memorize the feeling of satisfaction. So like an imprint on your brain, is that what you mean? Yeah, so I want to have that, that feeling again. You know yes. what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. So it just keep myself work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you get that feeling. Well, so that's again. I, I want to emphasize that maybe you and I share that idea because I, when I work, when I design, I will work on something until I actually have a feeling that I always say it's like somewhere in like the middle of my stomach or like right under, you know, right under where, <laughs> where, <you're, laughs> uh, and that's when I know something like big is happening from, and you know, maybe the rest of the world doesn't look at it and think it's big, but I think it's big because it's, it's lighting up a particular like sense of joy and feeling within me. And I often feel like until I get there, that the project isn't quite right. It's not done. I need to think about it differently or I need to play with it. And I try to do this actually with client work and with my own work, like anything I initiate on my own, that I try to use that as my, my guidance because I'm like, if the joy is, or if it's a, if I can arrive at joy, then 
I trust that this is like the right approach. It's the and the thing that's interesting is every time I find oh, I like that. Yeah. yeah, and it's like every time I find joy and then I present that project to the client it always is so smooth. Like it goes really, really well. But if I don't find joy and I try to present something, it's like it crashes and burns. It's like the client's like, ah, I don't know. It's just, and I'm, I feel the same. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't feel right. You know, like, so it's like, I think one thing that I notice with, you know, younger students too, that's funny is like, I try to encourage them to find their pathway to joy in the project instead of asking me if something's right or wrong because i'm like well that's not really the question you want to ask you want to ask like how do you discover this like really bright shining feeling within the work and then you'll be good you know yeah i agree with you yeah that's the most important thing and if you don't find any anything joyful or pleasing why are you doing this? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, for a living, for sure. You, you, you have to do it for a living, but I mean, but there's a lot of ways to make a living. <laughs> yeah. I just wonder what the world would look like if more humans decided to do what really made them joyful instead mm -hmm. of doing what they thought they should do. Like how different would our world look like, you know? It's incredible. Wow. Yeah. That is a good question. Like, I'm sure it'll be peaceful. <laughs> and fun. <laughs> it's probably a yeah, lot of fun. fun. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So one more, one more little thing I'd like to talk about that we, we touched on kind of earlier. Um, but we're based in Atlanta. So that's, that's actually by choice. I think this organization is here to, to really see Atlanta reach some of its potential as a design center. Um, but I'd be curious your views on Atlanta and what do you think makes Atlanta special and unique? And how do you particularly feel about design culture in Atlanta? Yeah, um, let's see. It, it, seems, it seems that the city has grown uh, I mean, I only provide like my thoughts on the surface level, so <laughs> it's not in depth uh, sort of um, thoughts. But it seems that the city has grown as a hub for the film industry and its related design industry, such mm -hmm. as like architecture, interior design, and possibly visual communication design, right? Mm -hmm. And and so I think that the city has a lot of potentials to be growing as a as a design hub as you as you anticipate. And I remember you wanted to build a bookstore like Printed Matters mm -hmm. in NYC. Yes. Um, and and I I supported that idea when we had that conversation. And so yeah, I mean. Basically, it's a one of the you know one of the amazing metropolitan city in, in the states, and I have wondered how the city can be more like active for design 
specifically, I think visual communication design um, practices. Mm. And so I, I appreciate and respect what you guys are doing um, there. If I'm not mistaken, I guess you like you have like designers and artist talks, exhibitions, publications. Yep. And yeah. then through these, through these, you establish a design community and make it as a hub of design, right? Correct. Yeah. It's so. Yeah, I feel positive about what you guys are doing and really respect your your sort of yeah, directions. And maybe you, you should tell me about maybe you should talk about. <laughs> You know, how it is going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you know, it's going well. There's, there's a balance of a lot of factors because um, the nonprofit is really new. So we're, myself and the board of directors, we're, all, we're always working to plan and figure out like the best ways to sort of achieve our mission. Um, mm -hmm. And so far, even with the pandemic and even with, you know, not really having much in the way of funding. Like we've really been able to connect really quickly with the community here. And it's just so impressive because there's so much design talent in Atlanta and there's so much just great potential. And, you know, like you said, like Atlanta is one of the country's great metropolitan cities. I mean, it's, it's very, very mm -hmm. diverse. It's beautiful. Like it has so much, so many trees and, so many interesting neighborhoods and so many different types of things going on that, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, we, we kind of feel like it's the right time to really start trying to build a more, a stronger design community that exchanges ideas and that there's shows. And so, you know, we, we have kind of a, an approach where like we're developing programming to do exhibits, to do, different types of events, different types of experiences, um, different learning opportunities, educational, um, so that we can get more conversation going and more dialogue. Um, we're gonna develop a library because um, we're missing that as well, like a really good useful place for creative intelligence and tools and um, a list of who's in Atlanta doing what all that stuff's very important. And then we're still, uh, we're working on the store as well. We're still going to do, so it's going really well. It's just, you know, you've got to, you got to be clever about how you develop the ideas and how you get the right kind of funding. Um, uh, we got our first grant to do some workshops coming up. So we're very excited. I, you know, I think it's, yeah it's amazing to be here. And it's, I think it's nice to hear that you kind of agree that Atlanta just has, it's rich. Like it just has a, this great possibility of becoming like a major design hub. Um, mm -hmm. with everything. I mean, like, just look at the history of the city. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, like Atlanta is, uh, is, a. Uh, so relevant these days, like history of bringing diversity and inclusion and social changes. And there's so much potential for the city, you know, oh, yeah. to become uh, the center of design for sure. And yeah, I mean, 
yeah, I hope we can meet and do all the in-person practices in Atlanta soon, but <laughs> yeah, after the pandemic, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're hopeful as well. <laughs> so many, so many good ideas. And, you know, we're going to, in the early part of the year, we're going to continue, you know, this podcast is some of our programming where we have an opportunity to at least create dialogue around the philosophy of the organization. And then, um, yeah. you know, that's really good. We have a, a really nice listenership building up and, and, you know, we're going to try some programming that's, that's like COVID compliant, you know, that like some stuff could be oh. social distanced, or we think about clever ways to do programming that doesn't necessarily require a bunch of people gathering in a space. Um, but it's still mm -hmm. physical and and then of course we're we're gonna do a little bit of like virtual work too so it's and then you know as time goes on we'll kind of see what we're able to um to do so okay yeah. that sounds wonderful yeah it should be <laughs> it should be pretty cool well it's been a a lovely afternoon talking with you to all of our listeners thanks for spending time with us this is Practice Makes Practice, the podcast with me, Christopher Knowles, the executive director, and we've had Moon Cheng Jung with us this afternoon. This podcast is produced by Practice Makes Practice, and we have sound engineering from Wyatt Kane. Thank you to Wyatt. And we also have original scoring and post editing from Tommy Mormon. He's a wonderful volunteer for the organization. And of course, if anyone is interested in donating to help help us achieve our mission and help us bring exciting exciting dialogue and exciting programming around design practice, feel free to uh, find that on our website or you can donate on Anchor FM. Thanks everybody for listening and thanks a lot, Moon. Thank you. Bye.